What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I'm feeling good today. I got some video stuff recorded. I did some remote tracking for somebody. Good guitar day. Good guitar day. Don't you love those days where it's like it feels like your hands are just working? Felt like today there's just the coordination was on. So I'm going to celebrate by telling you. <laughs> also, the videos I did, I'm putting up some new stuff on my guitar course because I have a guitar course out. You know what? I'm going to just keep adding to the course. I decided I'm not doing the subscription thing, but you buy my course, I'm just going to keep adding stuff to it, so on and so on. And eventually the price is going to go up. So the earlier you get in, the cheaper it is. You know, as soon as I start talking about it, I feel like I'm like about to start selling you like a scam. Like get in on the ground floor. But hey, you know what? The guitar course is only going to get more expensive and there's going to be more stuff. So you buy in on the ground floor for the cheapest price and you'll get all the material in a lifetime of videos. Even new stuff. Just added to it. And you don't have to pay any more. None of that subscription stuff. I think subscription can be cool, but yeah, I don't know. I just decided to do it this way. It's actually less pressure for me to like do lessons all the time. I just do them when I, like, there's a ton of lessons on there, but I don't feel like I have to keep putting new ones because everybody's like, I'm paying monthly. But then it's like, well, the nuts and bolts, the stuff I really wanted you to learn is buried back in the, I don't know, whatever. I got a guitar course. I'm feeling really great about it. I got some new videos I recorded, and my hands are, co- are coordinated today. They're feeling good. All right, today on the podcast, we have Robin Ford absolute beast of a guitar player seriously insane insane i could go on and on with his credits but his solo catalog alone is worth talking about worth doing a podcast with but hey yellow jackets miles davis kidding me he also is a one of the classic people that people reference when they talk about dumble amplifiers that's actually the first time i heard robin's name was somebody who's like Oh, yeah, you want that Dumble sound? Check out Robin Ford. Sick tongue. Tell you what, his tone is pretty dope. Now, I ask him, because there's a rumor going around that he has serial number two of the Dumble Overdrive special amp. He's going to address that himself in the podcast. So tell you what, I've been rambling on enough already. Let's get right to it. Robin Ford. This season of Wong Notes Podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. If you're not familiar with DistroKid, it's who I use to upload my music and whatnot to the internet. So I put out an album, DistroKid will send it to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. With other services, sometimes they charge you by the album per year. So like you have five albums out, they'll charge you for each album every year. With DistroKid, it's just one yearly fee. As many albums as your band has, They can be up there, and that's just one cost. I love it as somebody who puts out a lot of music. And if you're in a band or that sort of thing, you can actually pick your team, and they'll do splits for your team. So you can choose this person gets 25% of the royalties, this person gets 25%, this person gets 2% because they didn't contribute to the group project or whatever. No, 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 no. You can choose whatever percentage you want for as many collaborators as you want. So it's amazing. Check it out, DistroKid. Let's get to it. Well, Robin, thanks so much for being with us. What a treat. I absolutely love your guitar playing, and I have a lot of questions because I'm very curious about several things with you. Okay. I'm happy to be here, and thank you. I have a band with Nate Smith, and he told me that he played on your new album. 
your new album Pure, which is a great yep. record. That's actually when Nate Nate was like, "Hey man, I moved to Nashville. I'm doing a recording session with Robin Ford this week or something like that." I was like, "What? Oh my gosh. Hey, that's so cool." That's great to hear. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about the new album and for those that are listening who haven't heard the new album, I want to hear in your words how you explore different things on this record as opposed to other ones because I have my own ideas and I have my own um I guess, perception of the albums you've made throughout the decades and what you're, what you're aiming for on the dartboard with this one. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I would be happy to. Um, first, though, I'll maybe just mention uh, Nate Smith uh, is a great drummer. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't, you know, may not know who Nate is, right? Sure. Yeah. And uh, I think Nate moved to uh, Nashville from New York. Is that true? Yep. Yeah, he did. I knew of him, uh, of course, with uh, Wolfpack. I am familiar with that band, yes. Stunning, actually, that whole band. It's amazing. So, yeah. Uh, so, Nate Smith's one of the great drummers. And, um, indeed, I heard from uh, my friend Brian Allen, who's a bassist. I don't know if you know who Brian is. Yeah. Living here in Nashville. I was looking for drummers. He said, well, you know, Nate Smith moved to town. So really? And he had his number sent it to me. I called him up. You know, I said, I'm recording a new album. Would you be interested in playing a little bit? And he said, yeah, you know. So I wrote two songs. <laughs> With Nate in mind? With Nate in mind. Well, yes. And uh, one of them didn't make the record. It's, uh, it's actually an extra on this box set that they've made. So it does show up. It will be uh, in a certain package, but it's not on the main album. So the song called Go, which was released as a single, and um, there's a slow blues on there called Blues for Lonnie Johnson that he played on, too. So, um, yeah, I was very happy about that. And then we did a, a live stream performance at the City Winery here in Nashville with uh, a bunch of great players here. So um, the new record, you know, normally uh, when I make a record, I think this is the case for every record I've ever done until now. I write a bunch of songs. I get a band together, go into the studio cut tracks for three, four days, and then, you know, go into the overdubbing stage. And, you know, another song might pop up, you know, go back into the studio for a day and cut maybe one or two more tracks. That happens sometimes. But generally, write songs, put a, a group of musicians together, go into the studio, record, and then, you know, overdubbing, mixing, etc. So this record, I started the same, the same idea. Like I got together with a group of players with little knowledge of where the music was going to go, but I decided that it was going to be an instrumental record. And this is my first instrumental record since Tiger Walk, which was like 15 years ago. So I went into the studio with semi, you know, couple of things written, wasn't really happy, tried it again uh, with the addition of a different guy, wasn't happy. And it just occurred to me that I'm in my bones. I wanted this record to be completely my record. Because when you go into a studio with a group of musicians, they influence the music. And you're playing kind of to their groove, you know. And their groove may not be your groove, you know, no matter how good they are. I mean, I've played with the best, you know. I mean, Steve Gadd, Vinnie Caliuta. I've played with everybody. And it's like, well not really what i'm feeling man yeah <laughs> you know because you have your groove yeah 
your DNA, your biorhythms, you know? So I just went, not going to do it. I'm, I'm not going to give this record to anybody. I'm making this record. So uh, my co-producer engineer, uh, Casey Wasner, uh, he and I went into the studio and built tracks, man, you know, with a click or a, we'd create like a, a drum track, you know, using um, technology. And then I would play a bass, either on a synthesizer or an actual bass. Then I'd put a guitar on it and we went like that. So it was my time, my groove, you know, uh, my sense of what I wanted bass lines to be like without having to go, no, man, that's not it. Could you try blah, blah, blah? You know, I just couldn't do it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, that's how we built the record. And then, you know, we would send it. Of course, it was during, you know, the Cerveza sickness. And, uh, you know, so we would send it to drummers and they would put drums on something I already had, you know, send it back. Uh, we'd bring in a bass player to the studio. That was the only other musician who ever showed up was a bass player, you know, put on our masks and, you know, cause you kind of wanted that live feel. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's how we made the record. man. And, uh, I am so happy about it. I don't have any beefs, you know, with, <laughs> with anybody. I don't have to yeah. be mad at anybody, you know, for not giving me what I, you know, at least thought I wanted. You know? Has that been a problem for you in the past, making albums? Oh, constantly. Every record I've ever made. What seems to be the most common thing that you're up against, I guess is how I'll put it. Drummers. In what way? The time feel, the decisions? Yeah, it's like... I. To, to me, I, I feel like this started a long time ago and only got worse over the years. But drummers, almost everybody, I didn't feel this was with Nate, interestingly enough. Like, he started playing as like, same page, you know. I felt really good. But generally, you know, with drummers, like in the studio, certainly, they're always not wanting to rush. They don't want to rush. And, you know, the, the drum machine did this to us all. You know, when it became absolutely records made to a grid everybody's like got that click track going you know drummer's got that click track going and that allows the drummer to even lay further back if he wants to you know <laughs> and drummers to me just i always feel like i'm pulling a train i do my feel of time is right in the center of the beat i feel that yeah right in the middle and as far as i'm concerned that's where time is yeah. Time is it somewhere else, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and other people feel things differently. And once again, I think, you know, uh, the, the live aspect of recording just went away. You know, it, it, people don't, they don't go into a studio without a click track, man. At least yeah. the has got one. It's very rare. Yeah. Uh, may I add something to that? Absolutely. One of the reasons I wound up making an instrumental record was because of, uh, making two records over the last couple of years with Bill Evans, the tenor player. Yeah. I've made two records with Bill, produced them and played, of course. And uh, the drummer was um, Keith Carlock. And I don't remember uh, if we used Click at all on the first record, you know. We might have used it for something, you know, for some reason, you know. Uh, just the nature of the song or something. We, everybody kind of needed that reference, but I don't really remember. But this, the second record, no click. And with Keith, uh, we play the song. It felt great. 
we'd end the song. Tempo never changed. We'd take another crack at it. It would be the same tempo. Tempo never changed. And you could do that all day with Keith. And it was just right down the middle, you know. And he's one of these guys who plays a lot, you know. And I think that might have something to do with why, you know, his time can be so consistent because he's kind of covering. I like to say there's no 30-second note untouched. But uh, his time was just impeccable. Wow, it's just beautiful. And we just made a live record, man. The four of us in the studio. Keith, uh, Daryl Jones on bass, uh, me and Bill Evans. And Bill and I did all the writing. Yeah. It was so fun just to make a record. Yeah. No click. Live. Well, yeah. That does seem like it's less common. Uh, my experience, I mean, with Wolfpack and with Fearless Flyers, we've never recorded to a click. And we've actually never recorded with headphones on. That's so fantastic. So I think that's where some of that energy comes. So for me, it's like, maybe I take that for granted. I hear people a lot of times talking about that sort of thing. Now, my solo records and a lot of the other albums that I make and produce, I do them to the grid Mm -hmm. and I do them to a click, but I still get my time feel. The the thing that you're talking about, it's interesting because I am such a time stickler. I'm like, it's funny to hear, like I'm kind of giggling inside hearing you talk about this because there are certain drummers that I play with where I'm like, dude, you're just it, it, like I am. I feel like I'm driving so much. Yeah. And some this drummer might feel like it, it's not that they're dragging. It's just like your backbeats are a little bit behind, or you know something. Just some some aspect of your playing is a little bit behind. So I feel like I'm pulling it forward. And then some people are like, No, no, no! You're rushing. You're rushing. It's like no. Let's yeah. go in the control room. Look right. at the grid. I am literally exactly on the grid. Right. And you know, like where you place something, just the nuances of your subdivisions really, really affect how something feels, the urgency of something. Yeah. And I think for me, what I found is just having the right drummer. Like, I, I yeah, there's there's a lot of drummers where that sort of thing, mid-tempo and lower, uh, mid-tempo and under, that can feel really cool to pull back. Yeah. But if I'm driving something, I do not want it to feel like the engine is sluggish at all. Exactly. It is the engine. Yeah. It's propulsion. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, you know, God dang. And you know, I, again, I, I've watched you with, with a wolf pick, you know, and I, I love hearing this, that you guys never worked that way. Snarky yeah. puppy. Uh, I wouldn't expect it. And having played with Nate, you know, his, his time is just right there. It's, it's right. Yeah. There. And, you know what? So here, okay, we're good. You know? Yeah. The other thing is, you have probably access to pretty much any drummer you want. Well, if you have the money, anybody will come play. <laughs> I guess, but still, you've you just played with, like you said, you've played with so many drummers and so many... Yeah. Well, uh, people in every instrument, but you know what's actually nice about the modern era is all off, and, and it's also sometimes the curse, is social media. You can find cats that you may have never heard of, haven't played on stuff where it's like, oh, this person looks interesting. They have a cool time feel. Now, can they actually do it in the studio for five minutes straight rather than just like a 30-second clip? Mm-hmm. That you have to kind of try to figure out and, and do a little deeper digging. But I like that nowadays you can, cut, you can find people from all over the world in this remote era. Yeah, I guess I don't think too much like that you know i mean i've known all these guys for a long time sure the people that i'm working with these days off and on 
And by the way, I should say a disclaimer because this is out in the public, you know, like (laughs) I don't mean to bag on drummers. I get it. Yeah. But they have a different, you know, like people just have their own biorhythm and and their own mode of how they make music and how things should feel. So I was just saying that was important to me not to do that on this record. Sure. Well, and I think there are certain geographical influences as well. Like I'm from Minneapolis and in Minneapolis, that time feel is very driving. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there are certain things that are quote unquote in vogue in certain time periods, but also in certain parts of the world. Like there's a whole scene in London. There's a whole scene Uh in Philly in the East coast, the Nashville scene LA sound and scene like there's so many different scenes that have different aspects of them and time feel is one of them. Yeah. Most of uh, the recording that I've done has been in Los Angeles. Uh, you yeah. Know, LA players and yeah. There's a it's it's more like an industrial, you know, <laughs> sure. feel <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So anyway, enough about drummers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I'm, I'm curious do you consider yourself more of a rhythm or a lead player? I, I went through a real journey with all of that because, um, yeah, you know, my first instrument was the saxophone uh, when I was like 10. And I, yeah. I kind of kept it up all the way into, into my early 20s. But the guitar I picked up at an early age and I kind of excelled on it, whereas the saxophone was always, I was never really that good. Uh, loved blues playing. So, you know, I feel like I learned the guitar through listening to and imitating the great blues players of the time. And basically everybody was a blues guitar player in the sixties, you know, mm-hmm. but for me, it was Mike Bloomfield then Eric Clapton came on the scene. Then Jimi Hendrix came on the scene. I was two hours away from San Francisco. So that was that whole scene. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it was rock and blues, but I just wanted to grow as a musician. So I started buying jazz records I wanted to know what it was that they were doing. And um, the saxophone, I've probably listened to more saxophone players than any other instrument over the years. That and Miles Davis's trumpet. So um, jazz became, you know, my way of growing as a musician. So I wanted to be John Coltrane. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't going to happen. But I was far more interested in the single note, you know, knowing the chord and what's the note, what's the cool note, you know. And how many of them can you play? When I started playing with other people, it became clear that it was important to be an accompanist, to learn how to be an accompanist. And uh, working with, in particular, my first kind of really big high-profile gig was uh, with uh, Joni Mitchell, and the band was the LA Express. All these guys were first called LA studio musicians. And their whole MO was how to make that artist sound good this piece of music sound good, you know? Imagine that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at first I was a little, I certainly was, I felt out of my depth, but it became more and more important to me to to be able to accompany. So I started, you know, appreciating triads, you know, as opposed to the 13 flat nine. And eventually, of course, I'd always wanted to have my own solo career. I did the other thing because they were great opportunities and why not? But I was always looking for that door to my own solo career. I like writing my own music. I like playing my own music. Always did. 
So um, I finally put together my band, The Blue Line. And due to financial constraints, it started as a quintet and became a trio. So now I had a lot of work to do on the rhythm tip. You know, I'm the only chordal instrument. And we started making records on a consistent basis, too. And um, that's where my rhythm playing really started to develop. And so it's really a combination of both now for me. I wouldn't consider myself one over the other. You know, initially it was all about being able to be a great soloist. But I, you know, I learned early that there was more to music, making music than that. And the fact that I couldn't accompany somebody was like, wow. You know, I started, I started to respect that and wanting to get good at it. And so I really like the holistic approach. And I've also kept my music simple for the most part, you know, sure. blues and rhythm and blues has really been my, my home uh, as forms of self-expression. And there's that jazz influence in there because I do have the harmonic knowledge. You know, I'm, I'm not able to play like a lot of people, but I know what, what's going on. And the new album, Pure, is sort of an, an amalgam, you know, of all of these things. No keyboards on the record. And, and if there are, I played them, you know, like a little organ sound or something. All guitars, bass, and drums. You know, I love that. Like the, when you see who played on the, on the song, there's two guys this yeah, sure. <laughs> I did all the rest, man. With playing in a trio versus having somebody else accompany you when you're playing solos, hmm. it can oftentimes, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm so used to playing in a large band yeah, or playing with at least one person with chordal information behind yeah. me when I solo. Mm-hmm. Do you have any method or tips or tricks for those that are listening when you don't have an actual chordal instrument behind you soloing, mm. what are some ways that you can keep things interesting so it doesn't feel like something's missing? Well, I've always made it uh, a practice to kind of spell out the chords within the solo, you know? And I like that, you know? That was a challenge that there before me, you know? I like hearing the song going on, you know? I don't, just, just to blow... For the sake of blowing, you know, it's like, well, I, I don't want the song to go away. So I play the song when I'm improvising, playing the song, man. I'm not just playing what I know how to play kind of a thing. So it's always been, and again, I learned this very early on from those guys, you know, those wonderful musicians in the LA Express. It took me probably 10 years to digest it. I was in my early 20s. But, you know, when I got into my mid 30s, you know, I started really under, understanding that more. And um, the song needs to stay. And if you listen, like, because I do uh, a lot, I'm sure you as well. Well, I, I listen to a lot of saxophone players, but I realized recently how greatly I was influenced by Wayne Shorter. It's not because of uh, his incredible skill as a tenor saxophone player. It's because he wrote beautiful music. And he pl- always played the song. With that period with Miles Davis, everything got very out there. And there was like no song to play anymore almost, you know. I mean, they just really went on a wild tip there. Are you but talking I- about Wayne's Wayne being in the second quintet or your time with Miles? No, Wayne, Wayne with the- Wayne's era with Miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. His records are actually what I'm thinking of as I sure. speak. Because, um, you know, he made that series of records for Blue Note. Yeah. 
you know, so speak no evil, Juju, yeah. uh, Adam's apple. There's a fourth one that I wore out as well. I can't think of right now. But uh, Schizophrenia was a cool record. It was kind of more out there. But those records, man, just beautiful songs. And he was always playing the song. It was never like ripping through a bunch of 30-second notes, you know? He was playing the song, and that really uh, stayed with me, you know? And I think actually that's why he fit in so well with Weather Report, too. Boy, that was a whole nother tip Which is there. A, yeah, different. Th- like when you said Wayne Shorter, I was thinking, okay, am I thinking Miles Second Quintet? Am I thinking Speak No Evil? Or am I thinking yeah. Weather Report? Or even like modern day Wayne Shorter, Yeah, you know, with some of the stuff that he's done where it's, it's much more patient. Well, that period, of course, with Miles and the period uh, with Weather Report, in some cases, they were playing in a melodic way. But, you know, that was a lot of one chord jams, right? I mean, really, they just threw everything out the window <laughs> other than the beat. And uh, even that would get thrown out the window with uh, Miles's quintet, you know. They're my favorite records ever made, by the way. That band, those records, I think that's just the greatest thing that ever happened in music, man. Because they did do it all. Tony Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Ron Carter, Kirby Hancock. Whew. Yeah. Incredible. So, well, you brought up one chord jams and you talked about, you know, your jazz training as well. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. So there's a lot of ways that we can play as soloing over something or even writing for that matter, writing melodies. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of bands jamming on one chord. I do it myself sometimes for several minutes trying to keep the story moving along. Yeah. And there, even, I guess, when you're playing something cyclical, like a jazz standard or something, like, you know, you see college kids reading jazz standards out of the real book. It's like, you know, this cyclical form. Yep. In in your experience through the years of doing all this, listening to a lot of stuff, playing over so many things, Mm -hmm. how do you keep the story going minute two, minute four, minute 12 of a solo? Uh, I write short stories. <laughs> I <don't> write novels. <laughs> I really, I will only play for a long time if I'm on a roll. Mm, yeah. That doesn't happen, you know, all that often. Sure. And, uh, you know, if it's a song, I'll take two choruses, three, maybe, unless mm-hmm. I'm on a roll. I'm just not one of those guys. It's like, uh, hey, Miles even said that to me. I just remembered when I was with him, uh, we were at an airport and I, he goes, Robin, you just, you just say what you have to say and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I was almost offended, you know, (laughs) he was, he was actually speaking to this very thing, you know, and uh, I do, I, I do like to think that it is actually the musician in me you know, that made that choice, you know, I have what I have to say and then, you know, move on, you know, to keep pushing through is somebody else's thing, you know, and it is, I'm, I'm in awe, you know, of like somebody like Kenny Garrett to me, I'm in awe, you know, of someone who can play that long and that much to say and then do it again and then do it again. I don't, I don't even, I can't comprehend it. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because 
It's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. Now, you have a guitar dojo, which I want to get to in a minute. Your your on your online school. You brought up Miles. You've brought up Joni Mitchell. Several other people. Now I grew up in a school of negative reinforcement. <laughs> like I said, I I grew up in Minneapolis, and most of my mentors were in the Prince camp and that sort of uh-huh. thing. And that that is that camp is notorious for the negative reinforcement. They don't give if, you anything. Yeah, or like, or or it's like constantly berating you but like in a way that's that's uh that actually is they're never wrong they were never wrong yeah in their critique i get it but then but the the funny thing was it was like as i I, we would see it like somebody would sit in with the band if the drummer well the main one of my main mentors this guy michael bland who's an incredible drummer sure and if he if somebody would sit in and he'd say something like hey man nice job but uh don't clutter up the chord changes in the bridge, it's like, oh, he likes that. He likes that player. They're good. They're in. But if he's, but if he says something like, "Hey, nice job. You sounded really great," that's yeah. like they're they're out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like this backwards. I don't know. So I I grew up with a lot of negative reinforcement, and there are many other camps that have that may also be notorious for that. Somebody like Miles, who might either give you nothing or give you a little. You know, I, I'm curious because you've been around so many of these incredible musicians like this that have either been peers or mentors to you. Yeah. That sort of method versus, you know, just actual encouragement. What do you think those approaches are? And now I don't, this doesn't have to relate to your dojo. We'll get there in a second. Well, I mean, I, I just, I was never around that energy, you know, that style. I've never, I've never felt beat up. You know, I always felt, uh, even with miles. Uh huh. Yeah. Nice. He just liked the way I played, you know. Yeah. And uh, I did. I mean, of course, he beat the the heck out of drummers, you know. And that was uh, uh, unfortunate to see. And he would, you know, stare at people, you know. Sure. I I never even with him I never got I never even saw anything negative really. I mean, he sort of carried this. His presence was such that everybody was at attention anyway. Sure. Like he didn't have to get your attention. He had your attention, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I never saw him ever be mean to anybody except, uh, you know, the drummer who was his nep- nephew at the time. He just, just beat him up. And it, that was terrible to see. You know, it was, it was, I don't mean he was like calling him names, but it was like, no, that's not it. You know? And it's like, shit. One, two, three, four. It's like, yeah. what? You know, you kind of like it or you don't, you know, you can't, it's, it's really, you can't change a drummer. You can't change him. You can't change anybody much. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the only place where I ever saw him be a drag. And no, I, w- I was never around anybody who gave me a hard time. Yeah. Well, but, good. Yeah. I just never <laughs> been there. <laughs> 
Okay, so you know, you say you can't change a drummer, and and you're also particular about drummers, as am I, and time feel. I I am certain with my just in my experience from teaching other musicians, not just guitar players, but teaching time feel, how to help somebody have a certain type of time feel or an awareness for that. Uh-huh. Do you, in your dojo, in your playing, in your bands that you're with, do you try to encourage and teach any certain type of time feel? I have not up to this point. I have certainly mentioned it, you know, that, like I say, like, I'm a clock, you know, my, my time feel is right in the middle of that beat. I'll mention things like that, but they're kind of in passing because I, I really do feel like it's, you know, a person is, it's, it is the person they are. I do believe that they can indeed find some things, you know, it's possible to improve your sense of time. Cause I'm sure that I used to rush a bit, but that was, you know, that was the only place where really I would get into trouble but I, I listened to all the people I listened to. For me, I, I just heard the thing right in the middle. Man, if you listen to like rhythm and blues records, if anything, they're going to rush. Nobody's playing back. If you listen to, you know, like Al Jackson with Booker T and the MGs, right, it's right there, man, you know. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> Stacks, you know. It's like, and, or Tony Williams, if he, he's just rushing yeah. like a mofo. You know, yeah. no click track <laughs> around here. So these guys, they didn't grow up, you know, with that shit. You know, it's like you feel good or you don't. You you didn't have the job. Yeah. You don't bring a band to you. <laughs> That's what I'm trying yeah. to say, I think. Sure. And drummers, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, for me, I don't like it. No, it it sounds like you need to, to, to find some other drummers. <laughs> sounds like you <laughs> just need to need to get with a different crew, man. I've been looking my whole life. I'll give you some uh, names, man. I'll give you some names okay. if you need some recommendations. Okay. You don't think time feel can be taught? I, I wouldn't think so. But I was never taught it. I, I remember that I couldn't do what I can do now just because I wasn't practicing it. You know, I wasn't acting like a rhythm guitar player in the beginning. Not, not in a traditional rhythm guitar sense. Freddie Green, you know... A great quote. I don't know if you ever heard this, but uh, Jim Hall, he once he once said, if you pared the whole guitar tree down, it would come down to Freddie Green. I love that. Guitar is a rhythm instrument, you know? Hey, I know that. Yeah. I'm a rhythm guy. I know. I'm unbelievable too, man. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so much of rhythm is awareness. It's not even actual technical facility. It's just awareness of where you place something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like I, I've listened to uh, the first really cool record that I ever made was with the LA Express, Tom Scott, John Garrett, Max Bennett. All those guys were studio musicians. I don't remember uh, if we used a click, and I tend to think not. You know, when we made that first album, but man, you know, I just sound like a little baby I mean, on my on the, <laughs> on the rhythm side. You know, I'm just like, you know, there'd be like some snappy thing to play, and I'm not there. You know, Tom's name. I'm a little on either side of it, you know. (laughs) And uh, I was like, oh, okay. So it it took years for me, you know, to to become, I would say, you know, a good rhythm guitar player. And I grew to love playing rhythm guitar, you know. 
And I love time right in the middle of the beat. And yes, it was always hard for me to find people to play with where I felt that. Ricky Lawson, when I was with the Yellow Jackets, fantastic. Uh, John Guerin, if anything, was a rusher. And uh, I worked a lot with Vinnie Caliota, Vinnie Caliota, who can do anything. And, you know, over the years, especially, you know, we've made records uh, with a little band called Jing Chi. So it's Vinnie, myself, and uh, Jimmy Haslip on bass, the trio records. And we're, they're fleshed out with, you know, some keyboard stuff and extra guitar and shit. Uh, those records we cut to click and um, wonderful, you know, playing with Vinnie. It's just fantastic, especially the last one. Like, Vinny's a blast. I don't know if you've worked with Vinny, if you know Vinny. He's just one of my all-time favorite people, and I would play with him anytime, you know. He was always a back-on-the-beat guy, you know. He just, you know, it's like right back there, you know. Steve Jordan, right back there. Yeah, but Steve but, can drive. Steve can drive. Yeah. It doesn't feel like the engine's sluggish. If you're relaxed to it. Yeah. And that's the same thing with Vinny. Like, it's there. They are there. They're delivering, mm -hmm. you know. But that sense of time is not in the middle. Yeah. So as far as I can tell, <laughs> you know. Sure. Well, I want to get to the dojo. So tell me about, you have an online school happening. Huh? You have an online school. Is it a subscription thing? Is it a course? Tell me a little bit about it. Thank you. Yes, it is a subscription-based website. RobinFordGuitarDojo.com, and there are three courses presented. One course is called um, Guitar the Way I Learned It, Beginning and Intermediate Courses. And um, it is literally like that. I start, with the I start with the guitar being tuned to the pentatonic scale. So that's where it begins. And uh, it's all of the uh, uh, blues oriented because I figured most of my fans are blues players. You can't go there to learn GCD. You know what I mean? It's not that kind of beginner course, but it is starting from the beginning. Uh, if you uh, if your interest is blues guitar, and then the intermediate course gets you know sophisticated, and I'm talking about you know diminished scales and uh, altered chords and examples of how to use them. So those two. Uh, and the third is uh, it's a rhythm course called uh, Expand the Jam. So the idea being, okay, you're doing, you have a groove going in this key, and you're like, how long do I strum G? <laughs> you know, what can I do? You know, so many people, it's like they just don't know what to do with it. So that's what the Expand the Jam is like, okay. Here are more and more and more things to do with something really simple. And then beyond that, uh, I have uh, interviews with uh, well-known talent living in the Nashville area. Uh, I have something called Story Hour, where I, I just tell stories from you know my ex past experiences with Miles and Joni and people like that. Timmy, let's see what else. There's, there's a tremendous amount of content on there. Oh, yeah, there's a gear page. You know, every week there's a new piece of gear that we talk about. Behind the scenes videos from, you know, making records, you know. Here we are in the studio with Bill Evans, Daryl Jones, and Keith Carlock. And uh, there's a, a ton of content, you know. And it has two tiers, sort of with the subscription base. You know, there's like silver and gold. And 
nothing is, as far as I'm concerned, is overpriced uh, in that way. And there's a tremendous amount. Oh, yeah. I, I give a new riff every week. Here's a new thing to play on a 13 flat nine chord. You know, uh, we have something called no talking where I just sit and play for two, three minutes. Something nice. And there you yeah. go. You know, I love it. So, uh, yeah, we offer a lot. And I, I appreciate uh, talking about it with your, your people here. Yeah. Well, you brought up gear and there's one gear question I have because the first time that I got introduced to you and your music, mm -hmm. it was like Robin Ford. Oh, he's the Dumble guy. Yeah. <laughs> you having literally serial number two Dumble <laughs> Overdrive special. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Might be a myth, but... Uh, Let's just, you should just go with it, e, whether you're sure of it or not, because it's a nice story. Um, but I'm curious. So for a lot of people, I, I know the hype. I've played through several Dumbles, and I think they're amazing amps. Now, I have other amps that I absolutely love, and I think other amps are actually more for me than a Dumble okay. is for me, which is fine. Yeah. What is it about the Dumble that makes it what it is, and why is it so special? There's a couple of things that are, I think, important. First of all, it's a hundred watt head. Yeah. And uh, I've I've played the you know Dumble combos where it's like a fifty watt you know with a single twelve. I don't like them. I, I actually do not like them. I, I wouldn't choose that for my amplifier. So hundred watts, and that's loud. You know, it's it's not something that you take into studios and make records. I did <laughs> up until. Up until the last couple of years, you know, when I, I started, you know, realizing that it doesn't, you can't use it. You can't use a hundred, a hundred watt head, two by 12 cranked up to make a record with other people. It's just, uh, things have changed for me and how I work in the studio. So I've been trying to get my uh, sound down and I'm working now with, uh, uh, little Walter amps and it's a 50 watt head and, uh, and a single 12 in the studio. And I wanted to bring that onto the stage. Doesn't work. I need 100 watts and 2 by 12 to be me, you know? So that said, the Dumble just has this incredible, I, I kind of like to call it like an even sound curve. I don't think it's actually an appropriate way of putting it. But, you know, the lows don't get mushy. They don't explode down there and get mushy. The mids, punchy, but not too punchy, you know? Yeah. Uh, and the high end, bright, but not brittle. Yeah. You get too close to it, of course, it will hurt. <laughs> so for me, the Dumble, is, it's a live amplifier. Again, mm. I made every record I ever made from since Talk to Your Daughter until my last two recordings. So that's a lot of records over a 30-year period of time, you know? In the studio, I would just do it. I didn't know any other way to play. But once I got out here and I started working with my co-producer, uh, again, uh, Casey Wasner, it, it just became obvious that we, I needed to start working in a different way. So I have started working in a different way in the studio, but I still haven't been able to transition into a, a, a live performance, certainly not with my band. You know, I can go sit in with somebody else with a Vibrolux that I have that I really like, my pedal board, one guitar. Cool. It's got a bigger transformer in it, so it's got more headroom. Yeah, headroom is the, is the thing. You know, I love saturation, but when saturation 
get saturated and it's done, you know, that, that experience for me is like, I need more. So the Dumble allows me to do anything I want to do. It's just incredible. It's like, it gives me the whole sound spectrum. Sure. Wide open. Yeah. And my amp is not too loud for me, you know. <laughs> I'd be too loud for somebody sitting in front, but I, I do watch that. Yeah. I, I never see people doing this. Yeah. And they're right there. They're like five feet away. And no, nobody's going like this, you know. Yeah. It sounds so good. Well, there you go. I like that. See, I'm a clean headroom guy. So what I do a lot of times is I end up using solid state amps. I just find oh. the best solid state amps I can. What's yeah. keeping you from, from using a solid state amp? Solid state has always just sounded a little brittle for me, you know, just square. Sure. I mean, like it, it might have something to do with the speaker that was in there. Yeah. You know, but I've always shied away from them. I tried them, you know, uh, years ago and not since, you know what I mean? I mean, you're yeah. a younger guy. It's like, uh, you know, you're, you're more open to these things and the technology's got <laughs> a lot better. It certainly has. Even Dumble said to me once, and I couldn't believe he said this. He said, oh, you know, Robin, solid state, it, it'll get there. It'll get to where you won't, you won't know. You won't be able to tell the difference. I just don't have any reason to go looking for it, you know, because I've got Dumble. I, I've got, and these little Walter apps, you know, not just to do a commercial, but seriously, they're really good, you know. For some people, they break up a little too soon, you know, and I totally get that. And again, you know, if I go out to play, it's going to be the Dumble, but the entire Pure record was made, not the entire Pure record, but 80% of the Pure album was done with this little Walter 50 watt head through a single 12. And that's in the studio. And I used the Dumble for a song called White Rock Beer, which is a through live performance. I used it for Blues for Lonnie Johnson, which is a full through live performance. And then the solo on um, Go, which is with Nate. It's an overdub. And uh, the solo on a song called Balafon, which was also an overdub. Yeah. See, you're speaking as the live through performance as being kind of an anomaly for you. But I, I honestly, I expect, I thought, I guess I just kind of thought that you, that all your albums were that, just like band in the room, no overdubs. No, a lot of overdubs. Yeah. Over the years, yeah. The way that I worked, you know, that having been said, uh, the, way, the way that I would work, or I should say learn to work over a period of time was I would play, just start playing, roll tape. <laughs> yeah start playing and then when it kind of broke down for me i go okay stop you know roll back just a little bit pick me up right there so mm. then i would play until it broke down pick it up right there play yeah so i would i would keep a thread going you know what i mean yeah 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 it wasn't like take a pass take another pass although that was so stupid i did used to do that you wind up doing 30 takes you know it's ridiculous yeah so uh, I, I learned to work in this way. And for me, it's a good way to keep the spontaneity. My energy's up. You know, we're yep. here. We're still in it. And I, I, it became a great way for me to work in the studio. Well, Robin, I love hearing those stories. Love hearing all this. You're such an incredible player. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you. Pleasure speaking with you. All right. We'll talk sometime soon. Peace. See you guys. Well, how about that? I think uh, Robin might have some beef with his drummer right now. At least if he didn't, he does now, if his drummer's listening. But 
I saw Robin's band play in Nashville last month, and they were awesome. His drummer was great. I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about. But I, I, I do also at the same time kind of know what he's talking about. If you're like going for a certain feel, and sometimes the drums are the first thing you're gonna poke at. But um, hey, Nate's on the out. Nate's incredible. Nate sounds dope on the album. Robin seems to like him. Robin's other drummer was awesome. He's, Robin, he's, he's, he's got great musicians around. His whole band was slamming. And this percussion player that was on the gig, this guy, he was so quiet, just chill. And then at the right time, bang, he would hit this thing. It was like, oh, man. I don't know where you were the last three minutes, but it was all worth it for that one little hit of the triangle. And then he'd play these really simple patterns. Really interesting, cool thing. So check out Robin Ford live. He's a great guitar player. And hopefully, you know, his drummer's not pissed at him after this. I, w- I mean, it's, it's all preference stuff. It's never like, is something good or bad? Time feel is preference. Feel is preference. Actual time, that's objective. That's for another day and another podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Peace!